Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The U.S. shares have reversed earlier gains. They are going sharply lower. One speculation is, and of course, everyone always tries to give a narrative and then everybody else puts it down. Uh, but one narrative is that we aren't getting any details on this possible agreement between uh, President Trump and China's Xi Jinping over reducing tariffs or limiting them altogether. Joining us now to talk about this and what else is going on on a global scale that could affect your investments, Milton Azradi. He is independent economics and investment strategy consultant and chief economist for Vested uh, so, Milton, thank you so much for being here. Do you agree that the market has mostly priced in some sort of trade deal and that the details actually very much matter in terms of whether the market will rally or not on the heels of it? Yeah, I agree. The The fact of a trade deal is there. The market uh, weeks ago decided we weren't going to have a trade war, and now they're looking for details. And um, uh, I suspect that the details are... Uh, uh, because the Chinese are interested in trade and the United States is interested in protecting the integrity of its corporate structures and its technology. And um, But Mr. Trump, of course, has harped on trade, so he has to come out with some face-saving and the Chinese have to come out with some face-saving as well. All right. Well, it seems like we're moving along the path to some degree for a you know, some trade negotiations and, and a trade pact with China. Let's go to the other side of the world where it's less clear, much less clear, which is Brexit. Uh, it appears that these, the two sides, the EU and the UK, continue to stumble towards some type of resolution. What do you think is going to happen there? Uh, well, I think the significant thing that happened is not happening between Brussels and London. It, it's the, uh, the Labour Party has endorsed another referendum. Uh, You'll forgive my cynicism, but it looks like Britain is following the European model of you will vote and you will vote until you get it right. <laughs> uh, so you think there's going to be another referendum? Uh, I think there will probably be another referendum. I don't know when it will be scheduled. But, will they get it right? Um, I, right now, I think the British public, at least if the polls are to be believed, would vote uh, to remain. Uh, but not under the same terms that they existed prior to the vote. So uh, May, if she's still in, in office at that time, will be able to go to Europe after this referendum to this sort of qualified referendum to remain and say, uh, let's renegotiate the arrangements. And, and I think that that might be enough of a bone uh, for her to quiet the Brexit side of her party. So we've all uh, talked ourselves blue in the face uh, about Brexit with little resolution because things just seem to get messier and messier. Uh, but there's been increasing focus on the slowdown that we're seeing in the Euro region, in particular stemming from Germany, uh, the area's biggest economy. How worried should we be about that? Oh, I think that is the great worry. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we, that the probabilities suggest a blow up in Europe, but I am saying this is where the surprise will come for U.S. markets and for global markets. Uh, the Brexit deal is a mess. Uh, even if they promise another referendum in the future, uh, it will remain a, a weight both on the British economy and the European economy. It's significant. Britain is a fifth of the combined EU economy. So uh, this hiatus, if, even if it's not an exit, is a, is, a, is a weight for their position, and they're slowing down a great deal. In the meantime, you have the Italians who are 
Uh, both right. both parts of the coalition despise the EU and would like to follow Britain's example. Yeah, but but when you say that the, there is the likelihood of a surprise, how much of a surprise could there be? We already have talked a lot about how much the economy is slowing down and the populist trends in Italy and even Spain. Well, I think the problem here is that the Italians are um, the Italians are defying Brussels. Read Berlin; they're defying Berlin on on their budget. And they have threatened to leave, and they have run on a leave platform. That doesn't mean Italy's going to leave, but it does suggest to me that uh, there could be another round in this ongoing European financial crisis, this slow-motion crisis where every few years there, there's a problem, and that rocks global markets. It's, uh, and that's where I think the surprise would be, not that Europe is going to grow fast or go into recession. I don't think either will happen. Um, and the problem, on a more fundamental level, uh, Europe has to address the euro. The euro is Europe's problem. And even the Germans, who've benefited tremendously from the euro, have, have alluded to the fact that they need to make some adjustments. But with the slowdown, the Germans cannot what type make of a, any concessions. What, what, what type of adjustments do you think needs to be made to the euro? Well, I think there's a realization in Europe that uh, when the euro was formed, currencies were uh, out of whack with each other. The, the Deutschmark, when the Germans entered, was cheap. Uh, the lira, the peseta, all the currencies, particularly in the periphery, were dear. That set up a situation where the Germans exported to the periphery and the periphery consumed, which was unsustainable. So I think even the Germans and certainly the Dutch and the Finns and people who are involved who have strong economies have suggested that the Germans have to make concessions. The Germans have alluded to the fact that they would, but the time is not right. They have political problems and their economy is slowing down. They're not going to make concessions now. That means that the pressure remains. All the reasons the Italians want out or a new deal remains. The British, who are not part of the euro, it's not, it's not their problem, but that compounds the situation for the Franco-German alliance. Uh, I think we could have, I'm not, uh, I don't think it's probable necessarily, but I think that would be the surprise, another financial blow up in Europe. And with Italy, it's a lot more significant than Greece. But you don't think necessarily that there's going to be a recession in the near term in the Eurozone. And it sounds like you're fairly sanguine on China, at least given the stimulus. What about the U.S.? Do you foresee a, a near term recession here? Uh, no, not near term. I think the economy has no excesses. I know that recently... No excesses. No excess, except in Washington, and that's perennial. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, but um, I don't... The business community has strong balance sheets. I know people have talked about debt. A lot of that debt was getting in while the yields were low, and they paid off other debt. Uh, so the uh, statistic I, I stick on there is that their debt growth has been about 6.1% a year. Their liabilities growth has been about 2% a year. Clearly, they're using the debt to pay down high expensive uh, uh, borrowing from the past. Um, and they have used it to buy back stock. It's true. Um, the consumer has a strong balance sheet. The slowdown that we're seeing now is part of a pattern where they have shown remarkable prudence for American consumers, um, where they, if their wow. savings rate falls a little low, they pull in their horn and reestablish a stronger savings rate, yep. and that's what they're doing. So I think later this year they will actually begin to pick up. I know that there's some constraints in the labor market, but um, uh, that, that can be resolved. Excellent. Yeah. 
the consumers are powering this economy still. So and they're showing restraint <laughs> for Americans. Restraint. Milton Esrati, thank you very much. <laughs> Milton is the independent economics and investment strategy consultant and chief economist for Vested joining us here. Paul, there is a big question in the era of big data and companies getting a lot of it, the digitization of everything. What are the potential implications from a regulatory standpoint for individual investors who log onto their app or connect to uh, some kind of advisory firm that uses an app or uses some machine learning behind it uh, to understand their client? What are the potential risks here? And joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, somebody who's given a lot of thought to this, Gregory LeBlanc. He is a lecturer at Haas School of Business at Berkeley Law School. He is a here with us in Scottsdale, but University of California, Berkeley is also, I'm sure, beautiful right now. So, uh, so Professor, what's your sense of this? I mean, what is the potential risk here? Well, if you think about it, a financial advisor is someone that you know, usually you want, you want to trust, right? They're not somebody that you want to have an arm's length relationship. If you want them to provide you with high quality service, high quality advice, then they, like your doctor, like your lawyer, right, have to get your trust. And that means you're going to give them a ton of information. I mean, right now, robo-advisors ask you things like your age and uh, maybe your planned retirement date uh, and um, you know, your tolerance for risk and sort of survey-based. Um, that's going to change, right? We're going to have uh, robo-advisors that know you uh, better than your mother, right? Just like Facebook and Google now know you better than your mother. Based on information that they glean from other sources? Well, part of it's going to be information that you provide. You're going to probably opt into giving them lots of information. So, for instance, um, if we really want to know your appetite to, for risk, rather than asking you questions, we should observe your behavior. You know, do you go to casinos, right? Do you bungee jump, right? That sort of thing. That's, that's a much more accurate uh, way of, of, of understanding you. Um, and, you know, we want the financial advisor to protect us from our, our worst uh, uh, impulses. And so we want them to know about our, our worst impulses. And so we're going we're gonna to share this information. And so in order for them to provide us with high quality service, they need to know a lot about us. But as we've seen, uh, the casino companies also <laughs> want to know a lot about us. And, and, and that they, do, they use the information that they get to, uh, you know, make sure we leave the casino with less money uh, <laughs> rather than more money. <laughs> So, so how, how have individual investors, how have their expectations changed in terms of how they interact with, uh, I don't know, the consumer finance, whether it's a broker yeah. or a banker? I mean, are we, how has that changed? Well, if you think about a typical financial advisor, I mean, a typical financial advisor is usually over 50, and their clients are over 50. And most younger people don't really want to deal with this, this, uh, their dad's financial advisor. And so they're beginning to put their trust into robo-advisors, right? You know, you, you open up an app and, and then you press a few buttons and you don't actually have to deal with the, 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 the back-slapping human, right? And, uh, and so I think every financial services company realizes this and, and they're starting to move in that direction. But it's not just the consumer-facing app, but it's also the, the technology that lies behind it. So have there been any instances where a financial advisor that runs a robo-advisory uh, outlet that does draw in these millennials, has there been any cases of them using the information to the detriment of the investor saying, you know, we're going to sell them this much riskier thing that gives us bigger fees because we know that they bungee jump and they listen to death metal. <laughs> well, okay. <we're, laughs> that's right. We're not there yet, but I mean, we all know about Wells Fargo and, um, you know, which I have a lot of friends who work there and it's a you know, perfectly fine financial institution, but you know, e you know, any big financial institution is, is if it doesn't have proper controls, uh, if it has incentives for people to generate revenue, then th they're going to use this data. So, you know, Wells Fargo 
famously um, got in trouble because they used uh, data for cross-marketing purposes and, and uh, um, you know, aggressively um, created accounts and, and you know, pursued uh, marketing campaigns for individuals based on what they knew about their propensities to buy these different products or uh, not notice that these products were <laughs> being obtained for them, right? So, so oh, I guess... And one thing that I'm just wondering is like, how much is this a, a regulatory issue? How much is this uh, something that should be coming from the government? And how much is this just a cultural issue uh, yeah. in each firm? Because there's there's really a fuzzy line here. You, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the same, really, this discussions we're having right now about Facebook, we're going to be having about all of our financial advisors. Um, you know, we have a very laissez-faire attitude right now where people opt in. Uh, the problem with most Americans is that they say, oh, I believe in privacy. But then if you offer them a free slice of pizza in exchange for their DNA, they, they, they take it, <laughs> right? And, and so, Guilty is charged. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, I think at some point the, the law is going to catch up. I mean, I'm not sure whether we're going to copy something like GDPR in, in Europe. Uh, but, um, and uh, look, the big companies are probably going to benefit from those kinds of privacy protections. So because, th that kind of brings yeah. me my next question, which is, which companies or which types of financial institutions are doing this well? Yeah, well, nobody yet. Okay. Right? <laughs> so, um, the you, you know about uh, Betterment and uh, Personal Capital and, and Financial Engines. These are robo advisors that have uh, you know made some headway, and then Schwab and, and Fidelity and some of the others have copied what they do. But we're at the very very primitive stage. I mean, we're at the MySpace era. Of, Ooh, sick of, burn. <laughs> of, uh, of of you know uh, robo advising. I think. Um, you know, we, there's just so much potential here that we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface. So I guess just lastly and real quick here, do you think that there is an appropriate amount of information for these robo-advisors to collect or do you think it's important for them to have all this information? It's just uh, having some sort of control as far as how they use it. Yeah, I mean, the more information they have, the better the job they can do. If you think about Facebook, I mean, pretty much every ad I get on Facebook is totally relevant. I mean, I would never... Get rid of my Like ads. what? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as soon as I land here in Phoenix, I start getting, uh, you know, things. But, oh, here are some fun things to do in Phoenix. I'm like, oh, this is great information, right? Because they know me well. Um, but, you know, you, you darn well better trust them. And if they lose your trust, then they, they lose your business. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the companies that have the name brands, they, they have to be very, very careful that they don't lose uh, the trust of their investors. Because one big scandal... And, uh, you know, Facebook's a monopoly, but, but financial institutions, we have a lot of competing financial institutions. And so, yep. you know, you can't just, you, can, you can't cancel your Facebook account, but, hey, I can cancel my Morgan Stanley yep. account, and, you know, and, and, and move it over to, you know, Goldman Sachs with the click of a mouse. Yep. So, so I think people Excellent. are going to have to do, behave. Gregory LeBlanc, thank you so much for, for joining us. Gregory is the lecturer at the Haas School of Business at Berkeley at the University of California. We are talking all things asset management, front office, back office, the whole thing. Joining us to kind of drill down deeper into some key issues is Steve Meyer. Steve is head of uh, Global Wealth Management Services at SEI. SEI has over $300 billion under management. It's based in Oaks, PA. Uh, but Steve joins us here in lovely Scottsdale. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Boy, your industry, it's just uh, tremendous here uh, about all the change that's going on, whether it's regulatory change, competitive change, you know, just investors changing how they're investing. What is the number one issue that you and your attendees here are trying to tackle today? 
Well, I don't think there's one number one. I think everything you listed is on the minds here. Um, you look you look at asset management, there's a lot of fee compression and pressure uh, on managers today. Regulatory changes, um, you know, ironically, we look at them as opportunities to help our clients, but they are challenges for our clients. Uh, and then really, you look at uh, all the new technology coming out that can support a manager from how they invest and pick stocks all the way through, as we start to talk about, uh, through their back office, middle office to front office. I think that, that all of that is on their minds, as well as how is looking forward, they differentiate themselves. Uh, so I think that's one of the key notes of this conference, to get these clients together, a very diverse group of people and firms, to start to look at the industry, not just what's happened, but what's going on in the future and how they can kind of talk and collaborate and come up with uh, some things that would help them in their strategy. So Steve, let's dig into some of the changes that are happening, particularly in the processing side. Mm -hmm. It's not just settlements and, and, and things like that. It's also uh, requests for redemptions and deposits in hedge funds and other issues. What are some of the big developments recently from your end? Um, well, I think all of them, you know, everything is being driven and there's an underscore, uh, underscore of technology in, in much of this. Um, when you look at the processing side, uh, really, you have to scale and have a very efficient process. Uh, so there's a ton of enabling technologies that many firms like us are looking to employ. But one, just not from scale and efficiency standpoint, but if you think about it, the back office is where it all starts. Um, that's the core, the foundation. If you don't have a seamless, well-processed back office, you're not going to have the best front office or investor end experience that you can have. The back office is obviously where a lot of the data resides, too. And in these days, you can't go too long without someone talking about uh, folks are looking to get into more data and analytics, predictive analytics. All of that's going to come out of the back office. That's where it starts. So that's what's pushing what some of the trends we're starting to see right now. One of the themes, obviously, that we've heard in the asset management business over the over many years, and I'm certainly here, I've heard it here just at this conference, is, uh, is the pressure on fees that asset managers are dealing with. How are, so, how are they responding, and what are some proper responses that you're seeing in the marketplace? Well, I think a couple of things. I think they're looking at what their core strategies are. Um, you know, most managers, especially multi-strat managers, are looking and saying you know, where they want to really make their bets for the future, what their core investment thesis is. Um, and they're shuttering products that either aren't in favor or aren't really core to their strategy. Uh, two, uh, so I think they're trying not to be all things to everybody, and I think that's uh, a very good strategy. Two, they're also focusing on what their core is, and their core is managing money and focusing on clients. So everything else from their technology infrastructure to their processing, if they're doing that in-house, they're outsourcing it because they're going to firms like ours, uh, that that's our core, that we can give them a better experience and give them more scale in doing that. Do you have trouble hiring people to do what you need them to do? No, we've been very blessed. We have a very good location. Our headquarters is out of Oaks, uh, Pennsylvania. We also have a number of offices across the U.S. and globally, London and Dublin. And we have a really good talent base that we can draw from. The reason why I ask that is because a lot of people say, especially when they're trying to build out their tech specialists, because this is a different skill than, say, processing something by fax, um, especially if you're talking about data analytics. Mm -hmm. People talk about a shortage of eligible employees, but you have not found that. No, I mean, we, we look at, we hire uh, certain subject matter experts and, you know, we bring them in from all others, so all over. So some of them might have to be relocated, but then we do do a very good job of training people. So we do a balance of hiring and getting locate that talent outside, as well as putting together a pretty good training program to train up the personnel we need. How about, uh, just real quickly, 20 seconds, 
U.S. versus, let's say, Europe? What, how's the regulatory or just the competitive environment in Europe versus here? In your class? Uh, well, I'd say the regulatory, uh, it's tough across the globe, but especially uh, outside the U.S. in the European uh, sector, it is very tough. Uh, rules are changing. Uh, they seem to be changing daily. Uh, <laughs> they seem to be getting tougher. Uh, there seems to be quite a, a, a large gate uh, you know, for asset managers there to, to hurdle. And, but again, we look at this as an opportunity for us to help managers navigate that. Thank you so much for, for being with us and for having us here. Steve yes. Meyer, <laughs> Head of Global Wealth Management Services at SEI, uh, which oversees uh, more than $300 billion and also serves a variety of clients from hedge funds to big asset managers uh, with the uh, intricacies of making it work. One aspect that's driving markets a bit higher today is the fact that China is apparently uh, giving more fiscal stimulus, particularly to its manufacturing sector. Joining us now, Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, to discuss kind of what this tax break is that they are giving, particularly to manufacturers, and whether uh, markets are accurately reflecting the boost. So, Tom, what is this VAT tax that we're talking about here, and what did China do? Um, so. We've got the National People's Congress coming up this week, Lisa. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to get Premier Li Keqiang giving his annual work report um, to the Chinese legislature. Um, so the VAT is going to be part of it. Uh, and we've got a Bloomberg News scoop suggesting a cut in the VAT rate, uh, which could be worth around 0.6% of GDP. Wait, hold on a second. Um, VAT rate. What is this in practical terms? So this is the... Uh, the value-added tax, so it's a tax which businesses pay on the value-added component of their manufacturing. Um, the bigger picture, though, Lisa, um, is that um, China's policymakers have recognized that they've pushed all the buttons that they can push uh, in terms of monetary policy. And so when the economy needs more support, like it does in 2019, it has to come from fiscal channels. So part of it is probably going to be this VAT cut. But the bigger picture is that we're expecting a larger fiscal deficit target for 2019. We think if you add up the central government deficit, some special bonds, which they're going to allow the local governments to issue, we could be looking at a fiscal deficit target of about 5% of GDP for the year. That's including the VAT cut that we were suggesting. So China's policymakers lining up to give a pretty significant fiscal boost to growth in 2019. Maybe the Chinese economy this year is going to look a bit like the US economy last year with that big turbocharge from the Trump tax cut. And I think that's why we're seeing a bit of optimism creeping into the markets. So, Tom, let me, let me just start off here. I mean, you and I have known each other for a while. How many years did you live in Beijing studying the Chinese economy? Um, I was there 11 years, uh, Paul. I, I got out just before my lungs gave in. <laughs> All right. So you know what's going on there. So let me give you, let me just get your opinion on these on-again, off-again trade talks. They seem to be back on again. My question to you is, will there be anything substantive in these trade talks, number one? And number two, uh, can we verify that China's actually will, will uh, actually, you know, kind of uh, do what they say they're going to do? I think there's going, there's going to be a bunch of components to this, Paul. Uh, and as you suggest, verification is going to be absolutely key for the U.S. side. Um, so I think we're going to get some immediate results. 
there's going to be a dollar amount which China agrees to buy, whether it's soybeans or natural gas or corn or whatever. But there's going to be a dollar amount for a specific amount of purchases which China commits to make to reduce the trade deficit. And then there's going to be some immediate things, right? So there'll be some immediate things around allowing businesses from the US to operate as wholly owned foreign ventures in China, not forcing them into joint ventures. The more difficult things though, can we protect intellectual property? Can we reduce subsidies to state-owned firms? Can we allow foreign firms to operate on a level playing field in China? These are clearly things which you can't do in a week or a month or even a year. So that's why there's going to be a need for an enforcement mechanism to go into place. So meanwhile, as these trade talks continue, the reason why people are so interested in the VAT tax or sort of some of these fiscal stimulus measures is there is a question of how much the Chinese economy is slowing down in the meantime and how much ammunition they have left, frankly, uh, get it going again. I mean, it's still growing, but uh, at that 6% target rate that they would like to see. So what's your view on that? Do you think that they have enough juice to kind of to kind of get that going? Yeah, it's a slightly sort of complex and unsatisfactory answer, Lisa, but um, they've got less... (laughs) We're used to those. Don't worry, please. (laughs) They've got less. They've clearly got less firepower than they did. Um, If you look at the economy as a whole, debt is around 250% of GDP. That's a lot of debt. So they've got less firepower than they did have. Even so, government debt is still relatively under control. The banking system is well funded. So if they need to stimulate this year, next year, the year after, I don't see a huge problem with that. I still think the the structural drag on China, the kind of the point where they're out of ammunition, I think we're talking about the mid 2020s, not the next two or three years. Hey, Tom, just real quickly in the next 20 seconds. Um, you know, the China would have you believe that GDP is a six or six percent growth number for them. We've heard much lower potentially. What do you think that real number is? So the question I have for the doubters on China's GDP data is you seem really happy to believe that credit growth is super fast. If credit growth is super fast and that's going into some kind of meaningful activity, then there has to be some growth. So we think there's smoothing in the GDP numbers, but we're skeptical that they're the real numbers very far below what the official data suggests. Interesting. Okay, because we've heard numbers, you know, significantly lower, maybe two percent, two two and a half, three percent, exactly. Tom Orlick, uh, thank you very much, Tom. Again, eleven years uh, in China studying the economy, uh, so he is certainly the go-to person here. Tom is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joined us on the phone from Washington D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.